0: It's exactly 5 o'clock Central African time. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I'm Tad Tolo driving the show with Asanda Matsawunyana, Amanda Machaka, and Neto Chemane. Top stories on Africa Digest this hour, Catholic bishops in the Democratic Republic of Congo call on the country's government to guarantee human rights and respect democratic rules in the management of the state. And South Africa's ruling African National Congress is battling on many fronts to contain the fallout from a deep political crisis a few weeks ahead of the local elections. But first, the news with Asanda.
1: Thank you, Tato. Good evening. A strike by more than 3,000 lecturers in South Sudan's five public universities enters the fourth week, with the government promising to pay them their salaries and allowances for the past three months. The lecturers have ignored a government letter pleading with them to resume work or risk losing their jobs. James Shimanyula reports.
2: Controversy surrounds the striking university lecturers in South Sudan. Without specifying the debt. A senior government officer in the Ministry of Information, Michael McQuay, stated that lecturers would be paid next week. But on the contrary, Higher Education Minister Peter Adokunyaba has threatened to sack the lecturers if they fail to resume work as soon as possible. Five of South Sudan's public universities have been on strike demanding for unpaid salaries and allowances.
1: While an influx of Mozambican refugees continues to enter Malawi, the recent funding shortfalls have led to the suspension of food distribution at Malawi's Zalika refugee camp situated in the central region district of Doha. The camp houses refugees from Rwanda, Burundi, Ethiopia and the DRC, amongst others. Their situation is precarious and reports are that food will not last a month there. Malawian law prohibits refugees from engaging in business activities outside the camp. Meanwhile, a recent survey by UN agencies has found that lack of food is driving gender-based violence and exploitation at Zaleka. Zimbabwe's Wildlife Authority has suspended its director-general and is investigating the disappearance of 228 kilograms of the agency's stored rhino horn. The Southern African nation keeps in storage 70 tons of ivory from elephants and rhinos worth at least 35 million US dollars and is seeking support from neighboring countries to engage in international trade in ivory. The Zimbabwe Parks and Wildlife Authority says in a statement that it has sent Edson Chidzia on leave with full pay to facilitate the investigation. It gave no further details. Chidzia has declined to comment on his suspension. The presidency in South Africa has warned locals against a scam in which people are being asked on social media to deposit money into bank accounts in support of President Jacob Zuma. People behind the scam say the money will be used to pay back the money from non security features at the president's private home in Ganda. This follows the Treasury's report, which has determined that President Zuma is liable to pay over 119 million US dollars. Presidential spokesperson Dr. Bongani Nolunga explains.
3: The presidency wishes to alert members of the public to be aware of scams on social media where people are asked to deposit money into bank accounts in support of President Jacobson. The presidency wishes to make it clear that no account has been opened for these papers and no request has been made to members of the public to contribute.
1: Chairperson of Parliament's Portfolio Committee for Communications in South Africa, Humphrey Maklaekwana, says he is deeply concerned about the recent developments at the SABC. The public broadcaster's acting CEO, Jimmy Matthews, abruptly resigned from his position yesterday, citing a corrosive atmosphere. Maklaekwana says the situation is worrying.
4: For him to resign so hastily, it's concerning the committee. But we, we really, as a committee... Not engaged. The reasons as to why he did that because we are not in parliament. And uh, what 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 we can do as the committee when we go back in August will be able to get the briefing from the ministry from the SABC board. And definitely, it will be in our priority list of items in our agenda.
1: For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Matzaunyani.
0: Thank you very much, Asanda. It is five minutes after five o'clock Central African time. If you're tuned in, welcome to the show. My name is Tato Tol and you're listening to Africa Digest. Now, Catholic bishops in the Democratic Republic of Congo have called on the country's government to guarantee human re, human rights and respect democratic rules in the management of the state. As Jean-Noel Bamwezi reports from Kinshasa, the bishop's call comes only few days after the United Nations Joint Office for, United, for Human Rights mentioned an increase in violation of political rights and freedom.
5: The Catholic Church has made this call indeed as the Congolese National Conference of Bishops concluded its fifty third plenary session on Tuesday here in Kinshasa. They realized that both the electoral process and the national dialogue have stuck, although expected too much here, they then called on political actors to do their best for the problem to be solved. But what bishops described as a serious concern is the way human rights are dealt with here. They then called on this country's authorities to guarantee human rights and respect democratic rules in the state management. Reverend Leonardo Santedi is the spokesperson of the Congolese National Conference of Bishops. As we always see more human rights abuse, and that's why bishops have called on authorities to guarantee human rights, to respect democratic rules and effects in the state management. Because so many people have been victims of arbitrary arrest and quick sentence, media reduced as well, and this doesn't allow peace of mind few days ago, the UN Joint Office for Human Rights reported an increase of political rights and freedom-related violations. The office director here in the DRC said 155 cases have been recorded for the only last May. The UN office has then given more than 20 recommendations for the government to stop this ahead of elections, according to the office director
6: Jose Maria
5: Aranaz.
6: Huge increase compared to the figures that we recorded in the whole last year. Bear in mind that there were 260 of this type of violations in the whole last year and only last month it was 155. It was a month in which there were uh, many demonstrations across the country, uh, a number of which were confronted with uh, repression. We have given a set of over 20 recommendations to the authorities that are aiming at giving both the electoral and the dialogue process of the credibility. Uh, that it should have and that includes stop arbitrary arrest and detention allow for demonstrations for peaceful demonstrations by government opposition allow for the space of civil society and media include women in the political process and allow the judiciary to perform in an independent manner we think that those should be a good basis for a proper dialogue process or a roadmap for credible elections
5: and indeed both the presidential and parliamentary Elections are planned to be held next December, but it's not really clear if this will happen since the electoral process is not moving. Jean Noël Bamwezi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa.
0: Just slightly less than six weeks ahead of the 2016 local government elections in South Africa, the ruling African National Congress is battling on many fronts to contain the fallout from a deep political crisis. The party is deeply divided in its weakest state ever. It is not only struggling to contain the wider social, economic and political crisis, but it is also forced to fight to manage the internal factional uh, battles which are threatening to tear it apart. To help us look at at these new developments we spoke to, Suzanne Lenene, a researcher at the Institutional Audit Directorate, uh, Mosetu Muyepa, Chief Electoral Officer uh, with the country's Independent Electoral Commission, and Dr. Soma Dote Nifigeni, an independent political analyst.
4: What I can say from what I, I uh, we've been observing over the past few months and the past few weeks in particular is the intensity around issues on local government. But um, more interestingly, is we are not really seeing much of a discussion around the policy issues. We're seeing more issues on corruption. We're seeing issues on factionalism and uh, issues on internal party politics and that seems to be a concern because the over the past few years although there were issues around conflict on the election of of choices of candidates we, we, we spoke of mostly uh policy issues issues of service delivery this time around the focus has shifted this has something to do with the way in which our politics has taken shape over the past few years uh we can see it from the parliamentary debates um, the nature of this debate. And unfortunately, uh, what's happening in Parliament is a reflection of what's happening in the overall society. Uh, and, and so that is the one trend that we're seeing. The violence is not new. I, I think the violence mm. is, uh, is something we're used to. It's not something that we should celebrate. We should condemn it all the time. But it is part and parcel of South African politics. What is new is the way in which it is happening. I mean, for one, it's what has experienced. Uh, over the past week is something that is shocking to the to the system but in, in general i'm not really surprised um, that this has gone this way. If you were observing over the past few months in fact, in fact for the first the past few years, um, this is where we have always been heading. As part of
7: our political system. Let me move on to you, Masutu, who is the chief electoral officer of uh, the Independent Electoral Commission. The other contentious issue was around the IEC and uh, the local government elections, we know are in August 3, but we know that there was a constitutional court that ruled that even though the Independent Electoral Commissions acted, Actions regarding the voters' role were unconstitutional, would be given 18 months to clear up the defects, especially when it came to uh, the issue of the clockware and the by-elections. Are there Any lessons that were learned from this season uh, uh, in terms of the IEC?
3: I think there are two things that, that, that have to be said about the issue of the Constitutional Court. You will recall that um, there was a matter over which we, we held uh, different views, uh, political parties uh, were split, we were split, we, you know, and, and there was a view to be heard on what the correct interpretation of the law would be. We now have that certainty. Mm-hmm. Clearly, um, that, that is the one lesson all of us have, um, have, have learned and benefited from. But you'd recall that the court itself, the constitutional court, on the day that it heard the matter, it started in the morning at 10, it finished at 7 at night with a very uh, uh, small break in between. The court itself said this was the most difficult issue it had, it had had to deal with. And we are very grateful for for them having sought the clarity that we needed. From here on, I think it's important to say we need to act uh, precise, precisely. Uh, we need to, to act with speed. They have directed us to deal with the matter in Broadway, which we have proceeded to deal with last week uh, and the weekend. In that area, you will recall, recall that the court, whereas it suspended um, the uh, application of Section 16.3 uh, in these elections, it said for every by election we should, we should ensure that we have uh, addresses where those addresses are reasonably available. Um, and and we, we, we will do that. In Tokyo, we were requested to go back there. We have been there last week. Um, and 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 we have we have dealt with that situation so long
7: Dr. Soma Dr. Figen, your thoughts on the, the environment that we find ourselves right now in 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 the upcoming local government elections especially this build up that we seeing?
2: Well increasingly over the years we have started seeing that whenever you have elections national provincial or local government elections there is an upsurge of service delivery protests because the voters and communities believe that the timing of election campaigning might either embarrass those who are not delivering into delivery or may put pressure on any ruling party in that given area to deliver. That's the first thing. The second one, Politics have been corrupted in many ways because the struggle for people to be on the candidate list at the very top has become quite a brutal exercise where people from within the same party at times are prepared to exchange blows, are prepared to mobilize in order to get their names in. And this is largely a consequence of an economy that is struggling to provide employment, struggling to sustain emerging small black businesses, and many people begin to see politics as the only remaining avenue, either to get employment or to get access to resources of state wherein patronage of distributing tenders may take place.
0: That was Dr. Somato Deni Figeni, an independent political analyst. You also heard the voices of Musito Muyepia, uh, chief electoral officer with South Africa's Independent Electoral Commission, and Zanele Nene, a researcher at, at the Institutional Audit Directorate. They were speaking to Benjamin Mosho Dama.
8: This is Channel Africa. South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Welcome back to the show. I'm Tatatolo. Um, and this is Africa Digest. Make sure that you follow us on our social media platforms. That's on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and of course have your say about the issues that we're unpacking on uh, the show here today. Now, reports that the Italian Coast Guards have rescued another 3,300 people crossing the Mediterranean on Sunday show that numbers of people making the dangerous crossing are likely to keep increasing. This, according to the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, Logically, many people making the dangerous crossing do not make it to safety. Close to 3,000 people have uh, reportedly drowned at sea since the beginning of this year. For more on this issue, here's Communications Coordinator for the Migration Activities at the Italian Red Cross Lai I
9: know that it's a big number, but uh, unfortunately we expect these numbers. Because of the, um, the weather uh, is now is better. The, we have sun, we have an uh, hot, hot <laughs> uh, winter. So unfortunately people um, have to try to reach Italy. For example, I, I think that um, in the last two days uh, the Italian Red Cross assisted uh, at landings uh, more than 7,000 people. And uh, today, in, Fis- in Sicily, in Sardinia, in Apulia, and in Calabria, that are Italian southern regions, uh, the Italian Red Cross and the Italian authorities uh, are facing seven landings, more than 4,000 people rescued in the past day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we know that the trend now is the same over the past year, because um, we analyze uh, the data, and we know that it's the same, but... This uh, I think that uh, unfortunately nothing is changed, and we face uh, other uh, shipwrecks, and we will face other shipwrecks, other rescues. And other new landings of these destroyed people in the next
10: months. Now Alessia, you've mentioned I mean there's uh numbers and numbers of people that are making these trips even though they have been proven to be quite dangerous. We are not seeing them decrease. Why is this the case? You know, why are people still making these trips even though we have seen that they are quite dangerous? Alessia?
9: But we know that, luckily, uh, these flows increase because uh, we know that if you don't have anymore at an home, if you not, if you have not uh, a family, a job, uh, if you face a war and a destabilization and uncertainty, uh, what do you do, <laughs> you and your family? I think that. You will be ready to risk your life crossing uh, the desert and the sea. So I believe that the people that live their Mm. countries, that Mm. stay home, their families, and they die is uh, natural for the human being to try to have a better life. A better life, yeah.
10: Now, despite the Mediterranean crisis uh, not improving, it seems as though international attention has uh, diminished compared to last year's uproar. Why do we think that this attention is not as extensive as it was previously?
9: The problem is that that could be more than the report, we know that. Because Mediterranean now is unfortunately a big cemetery. What we are speaking is probably that other people are risking their lives on sea or on the desert. It is a shame. And despite uh, the, the the crisis is not improving, uh, we know that uh, the crisis is not in the, in the limelight. Um, we know that migrants never stop to attempt to reach Italy. And this also for uh, the deaths caused by the, the, the smugglers that are not interested in the safety of the migrants. They consider migrants as objects, and the smugglers are focused on the, their illegal gain. They use all bots, uh, put uh, these people in, uh, in these bots, uh, these bots uh, often overcrowded uh, can uh, sink. And you know that this... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, it's not in the the limelight. Uh, We know that uh, migrants have the right to be protected, but the public uh, in Italy, but also, I think, in all the world, is unfortunately used to the tragedies.
0: That's Alicia Lai, Communications Coordinator for Migration Activities at the Italian Red Cross, speaking to Zicona
2: Miso
14: Channel Africa, Blantaya. This is Lance Tana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown.
8: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa,
14: this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi.
8: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about
11: Africa.
8: Lesotho. <laughs>
3: Reporting for Channel Africa, mwai Konyo in Nairobi.
8: Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: It is 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Don't forget that you can catch us on uh, the Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet or simply uh, stream us. It's as simple as that. And make sure that you have your say on our social media platforms. That's on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Follow us, tweet us, tell us your thoughts about all the issues that we're unpacking at this present moment. The Greenpeace Africa activist today formally made a marriage proposal to one of South Africa's major retailers, Pick and Pay, asking it to commit to a 100% renewable energy future and ditch its dirty love affair with fossil fuels. Penny Jane Cook, climate and energy campaigner, says it is clear to her organization that Pick and Pay is not yet prioritizing their transition to clean electricity future and so they are calling on them to make a difference and show solar love.
1: So,
15: Greenpeace Africa launched the Renewable Energy Champions campaign in April with a report titled, Shopping Clean, Retailers Renewable Energy, and what that really focused on was the top five supermarket brands in South Africa, so Pick and Pay, Massmart, ShopRite, Spa, and Woolworth, and then asking them to make a serious commitment to renewable energy and a 100% renewable energy commitment, and we looked at four key criteria that we then ranked the various retailers against. Unfortunately, none of them did particularly well, and that's largely because the commitments to renewable energy at the moment are not particularly ambitious. We also require the retailers to lobby for renewable energy because there are a lot of barriers in place currently in South Africa that don't allow um, everyday South Africans like you and I to actually install solar panels and use that energy in our homes. So we're asking big businesses in South Africa and specifically retailers to step up and really start playing a more active role in the lobbying space around renewable energy.
13: What has been the response of the retailers with regards to the campaign on this uh, renewable energy?
15: We've had quite a positive response from a number of the retailers and they have agreed to meet with North Africa and we're taking constructive steps forward to come up with plans and really discuss how they can start being more ambitious around renewable energy. Some of the retailers are prepared to make commitments currently, but what they don't have in place is the action plan as to how they'll actually achieve that. So it's still in the early stages where we're really figuring out how they can go about achieving more ambitious with renewable energy. Unfortunately, today ShopRite has not engaged with Greenpeace Africa, so they still haven't taken the opportunity to actually speak to us and start engaging with us around that issue. And to date, Pick and Pay hasn't had a very open dialogue with us, and that's why we've been putting a lot of pressure on Pick and Pay to really come to the table start dealing with green south africa more constructively because we feel that there's a lot more they could be doing and there's a lot that they are doing but they're not really speaking to us in an open forum to really help us understand what's happening with the contemporary moment so we've been urging them to meet with us more actively and to take a more ambitious stance around renewable energy
13: now penny what would you say is the contribution of these uh, retailers when it comes to the consumption of fossil fuel and contributing towards uh, greenhouse gases?
15: So there are considerable users of energy. Obviously, it's a very energy-intensive business in terms of storing goods and moving goods around the country and running these large stores that we all shop at. A lot of them have done work around energy efficiency where they have managed to decrease their energy use, but there's still substantive energy users. So pay, for example, who has the highest energy consumption Consumes enough energy to power 65,000 South African households annually. So that's quite a considerable figure. So we really feel strongly that if they were to cut your renewable energy and start using renewable energy sources, that's really send a clear sign to the market that renewable energy is feasible um, and it's something that should be used more widely.
3: And what about the other
13: retailers? Are they also consuming more as it is with pick and pay?
15: So they are definitely within a similar kind of range. The next closest in terms of energy consumption is 55,000. African homes would be the next figure. It's quite a big jump from the highest consumer, which is compared to the next one. But they're definitely all within the range of being substantial energy users, and that is why we feel that if they were to combine and actually start investing in renewable energy, it would make quite a considerable difference to South Africa.
0: That was Penny Jane Cook, climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace Africa, talking to Wandi Lekalipa.
8: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: The third annual Africa Manufacturing Indaba is underway at Empress Palace East of Johannesburg in South Africa. The two-day event aims to affirm government and industry strategic focus to revitalize and reindustrialize the country's manufacturing sectors amidst intense intense challenges. This year's theme is manufacturing the future with the aim of showcasing and exploring the ideas and technologies that can make the country's manufacturing economies competitive in the global arena. More from Philippa Rotseth of the Manufacturing Circle, uh, which represent a number of South Africa's leading medium to large manufacturing companies from a wide range of industries.
12: Manufacturing has challenges both on the demand side and the supply side. On the demand side, any any decrease in demand as a result of reduction in global economic growth or local economic growth has an impact on the demand for manufacturing and therefore what can be made and sold. On the supply side there are also some challenges in terms of inputs and what goes into manufacturing so there's a labour strike for example that impacts or lack of security in terms of electricity supply or wine input costs, those are also challenges. So there's challenges on both sides, it's complicated industries that needs to deal with a lot of different aspects.
10: And uh, Philip. But the manufacturing industry is, of course, the backbone of the country's economy. What then do you think it can be done in order to make sure that South Africa achieves a competitive manufacturing environment? That's a very pertinent point. In spite of the
12: challenges, manufacturing is incredibly important to our economy in terms of what it does for job-rich growth. So on that basis, there are things that can be done, and those are some of the topics that we're having a look at in the endava. At a practical level, we can see where we can increase where we supply to increase our markets. So locally, we can look to buying local where we can, both in the private sector as well as in the public sector government for example has quite an extensive designation and local procurement policy where what can be bought from local manufacturers is provided that it's on a competitive basis and then also increasing market share in terms of looking at where we can export that's something that we can do to grow manufacture and then probably the most practical thing that we can do is that we need to start taking action identify which companies and which subsectors within manufacturing are doing well, why are they doing well, what can we learn from them, and just
10: start acting and a little bit less talking. And in terms of getting that uh, a supportive international trade position, how can we achieve that as well as advancing you know, the reputation of uh, the manufactured products from the side?
12: Well, one of our panel discussions is in fact looking at Africa and pathways to African development, South Africa's role in supporting the growth of manufacturing across the continent. So we need to be very mindful of where we are positioned within the international trade context and what we can do in terms of identifying where those opportunities are and making the most of them.
0: That was Philip Seth, executive director of the South African Manufacturing Circle, which is made up of a number of South Africa's leading medium to large manufacturing companies from a wide range of industries talking to Zikona Meso. Time now is just a smidgen after 5:30 and Asanda is on standby with the news headlines.
1: Thank you, Tato. Good evening. Catholic bishops in the DRC call on the country's government to guarantee human rights and respect democratic rules in the state management. A strike by more than 3,000 lecturers in South Sudan's five public universities enters its fourth week, and the presidency in South Africa has warned locals against a scam in which people are being asked on social media to deposit money into bank accounts in support of President Jacob Zuma. Your news headlines here on Channel Africa.
0: It is uh, 32 minutes after 5 o'clock. Thank you very much, Asanda. Uh, The South African Minister of Small Business Development, Lindiwe Zulu, and the Premier of the country's Mpumalanga province, David Mabuza, will be hosting international cooperatives on Friday and Saturday. The day's event will be attended by representatives of cooperatives from across the country and those aspiring to establish their own cooperatives. They will be given the opportunity to participate and share ideas on how the sector can grow as a force of economic and social inclusion The Director General of the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, Dr. Edith Fraze, says together uh, with their partners, they will use the two days to obtain feedback from their stakeholders on challenges confronting cooperatives in the country.
10: There
16: is an international cooperative alliance, and these focus on cooperatives in July is called by the UN. And so a theme is decided, so the international cooperative community is converging around the theme cooperative the power to act for a sustainable future and because that theme also resonates with us we adopted the theme that the international cooperative community will be driving in during this cooperative day.
10: Cooperatives are a serious enterprise model that puts people at the heart of all businesses. Do you think the system provides a great opportunity to bridge a gap between labor and entrepreneurship? Well, the essence
16: of of entrepreneurship, I mean, it's a culture that we must promote and says that we want a generation of people who don't sit and wait for somebody else to give them a job, but instead to generate people who are aware of their talent and will create business opportunities and create a business based on their talent and building a dream and a vision of services and goods and products that they can produce. Through their talent. So essentially, the entrepreneur, you can't outsource your dream. An entrepreneur has to be driving their dream. They must be at the heart of their businesses. And in the process, as that business grows, they also will create more great opportunities for others to be part of and work towards the achievement and of that dream
10: cooperatives are owned and controlled by the members they serve, and I heartbeat for poor communities. What do you think the challenges are when it comes to this kind of businesses? We must recognize, you know, that many of the thriving
16: private sector companies today were in fact started as cooperatives. For example, Clover started as a cooperative. KWV is still a cooperative. Phantom was a cooperative. And just yesterday we met with colleagues from the embassy of Finland who said ninety five percent of the Finnish population belong to a cooperative and they provide all of the goods and services that Finland needs as a country. Now so first to say that not to make part of the narrative firstly that it is problematic. The first statement I want to make that cooperatives can be the heartbeat of a thriving economy. And yes, like any other enterprise it faces challenges. The first challenge that I think it faces is because cooperatives are made up of a number of businesses. If I can use the agricultural sector, you would have a smallholder farmer who owns his or her piece of land and is responsible for that. They would join up with other smallholder farmers in close proximity, growing the same commodity, subject to the same conditions, and they will form a cooperative. And therefore, the first one is balancing the needs of the individual enterprise with that of the collective. It means that there's also great possibilities for tension to arise because as that cooperative grows,
2: opportunities
16: will come for that cooperative.
10: South Africa is in need of young entrepreneurs. What do you think the importance of cooperatives is in the country's economy when it comes to combining skills and making sure that all the bases of businesses are covered? Your enterprise is... So sort it's of affected on the talent
16: and an opportunity that an individual sees, and very really often that person knows that area very well. Let Let me go to a farmer. The person knows how to farm, or and knows how to make a particular product. But he or she might is not skilled at business managing that talent as a business. And therefore, when you are in a cooperative, the members can learn from each other. We're expecting around... 1,500 people. There will be cooperatives from all over the country, some of them exhibiting, others participating in the event. We are expecting ministers responsible for small
12: businesses from
16: southern countries as well to share their experiences. And so the information is on our website. It will be at, uh, in the Pumalanga, the main event will be at Mbala Stadium and it will take place on Friday and Saturday. If they access our website, they will be able to know how they can participate.
0: That was Dr. Edith Frese, Deputy Director of the South, South African Department of Agriculture, talking to Nosile Zuma. Now, while an influx of Mozambican refugees continues uh, into Malawi, the recent funding shortfalls have led to the suspension of food distribution at the Zalega refugee camp situated in the central region district of Doha. The camp houses refugees from Rwanda, Burundi, Ethiopia and DR Congo, among other countries. George Mhango reports from Lilongwe.
14: The refugees used to receive seven different types of food items. Now it is down to three, maize, beans, and cooking oil. And the United Nations had to cut the total amount of rations per person in half in the past year due to funding shortfalls. The camp takes in refugees from around the region, including the Democratic Republic of Congo DRC, Burundi, Rwanda, Ethiopia, and Somalia. The situation is precarious, but they say one thing is certain, the food will not last for a month malawian laws prohibit refugees from engaging in business activities outside the camp a recent survey by united nations agencies found out that lack of food is driving gender-based violence camp administrator owen yasuru says it is a challenge
7: at least every day we get about three complaints mostly from women to say that husbands have sold food Or maybe husbands have beaten them because there's no food at home to cook. Because the food is not enough, so they resort to the same things, as I said, risky behaviours, whereby young girls, they end up sleeping with older men and in, in some instances some young girls have ended up being pregnant.
14: Some have been raped, others have turned to prostitution for food or money to buy food. Members of the Camps Peace Committee say the stories are all too common. But that most women do not want to talk about their experiences publicly, for fear of being laughed at or stigmatized. But the World Food Programme warns that a fresh influx of Mozambican refugees into Malawi since December is once again straining resources. The refugees, many of them children, are fleeing alleged abuses by government forces in pro-opposition areas. Koko Ushiyama is the World Food Programme country director in Malawi.
9: So while in the past
11: we were looking mainly at the food security needs of 25,000 people in Zaleka, we are now having to look in addition to that food needs of 11,000 new people coming from Mozambique.
14: The World Food Programme warns that without additional funding, acute food shortages and ration cuts at the Zareka camp in the central region of Malawi, are likely to return by August 2016, George Mohango, Channel Africa, Lilongwe.
0: 20 minutes before the top of the hour, 6 o'clock. If you just tuned in, you're still listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and I'm Tato Tolo, your host on Africa Digest this evening. Information and the pursuit of it is becoming more and more dangerous, with over 800 journalists in the past decade alone uh, that have been murdered. That's one of the headlines that emerged from UN panel discussion on the safety of journalists working in the field. The panel heard that journalists should not be treated like a but seen as professionals searching for the truth on the public's behalf. Laura Jarrell asked panelist Judith Matloff, graduate pre- professor of the conflict reporting at the Columbia University, what had emerged from the discussion.
17: We were very, very encouraged by this. Um, the amount of interest within the United Nations. And so I think this exchange of views is incredibly useful because people are trying to find concrete solutions. What do you believe that the United Nations can do to start internationally bringing attention to the issue and then also starting to implement change? I, I think the key is quiet diplomacy with uh, non-compliant governments that are not enforcing the mechanisms that are in place and that are not paying attention to... um better protections for journalists, and I think loud messaging, that it's absolutely critical to put the issue in a public spotlight.
6: So it was mentioned that
17: to outside eyes there can often be blurred lines between journalists, bloggers, extremists, etc. What do you feel that journalists can do to make purpose clear when
6: working internationally?
17: I think it's absolutely critical to always be very upfront about who you are, who you're writing for or reporting for. And it's absolutely critical to to work within the highest standards of professionalism and accuracy. So to be clear with your sources, clear with your audience, and be absolutely professional. Social media has been seen as a threat to journalists because it can contain the information of their location and things like that. Does that mean that journalists should stop using social media or use it in a different way? I I don't think anybody should stop using social media, particularly it's a phenomenal way to get information and to reach your audience. But I think people have to um, think more carefully about how they use it. Um, You know, in terms of blurred lines, oftentimes people put personal, they mix the personal and the professional on their Facebook page. That's not a good idea. When they tweet, they have to think carefully about when they're retweeting articles by other people, could it be seen that they're endorsing those views? So in other words, just a more judicious um, use of it. Don't broadcast your movements. If you're in an area where you're in surveillance, don't say, oh, I'm going up to the north or something like that. You know, it seems like common sense, but it's amazing how many people will put up a photograph that could compromise their family's safety or their own.
0: That's Judith Matloff, Graduate Professor of Conflict Reporting at Columbia University. She was talking to UN Radio's Laura Jarrell.
14: Channel Africa Blantyre.
7: This is Lansona Fofana reporting
8: for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa.
14: This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi.
8: From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa.
11: in Lesotho.
3: Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwai Gikonyo, in Nairobi.
8: Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet, and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silosi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African renaissance. 1745
0: and Amanda is on standby with the economics news.
11: Thank you, Tato. Good evening. The third annual Africa Manufacturing Indaba is underway at Emperor's Palace, east of Johannesburg in South Africa. The two-day event aims to affirm government and industry's strategic focus to revitalize and re-industrialize the country's manufacturing sectors amidst intense challenges. This year's theme is Manufacturing the Future. Executive Director of the Manufacturing Circle, Philippa Rothsoth, explains.
12: We've got a diverse range of stakeholders attending the Indaba, from public to private sector as well as service providers such as the banks. The, The range of topics is quite wide ranging from debating and discussing policy to hopefully networking and identifying opportunities, immediate opportunities that make business and commercial sense.
11: The Perishable Products Exports Control Board says the impact of Britain's decision to leave the European Union remains uncertain. The decision has caused widespread concern for South Africa's trade relations with the European Union. The move has prompted the Western Cape Economic Opportunities Department to arrange a meeting with the British Consul General in Cape Town to discuss the impact of the decision on the economy. CEO of the control board, Lucien Janssen.
4: We haven't had the situation before. We haven't dealt with it. Neither has the EU. So it's very vague. We're watching the space obviously very clearly to see whether and what the repercussions will be. But at this stage there's not really anything we can predict. We do not know how it will influence the exchange rate, for example. We've been watching that quite closely and it's very volatile. It's very up and down.
11: South Africa is ranked 88 out of 130 countries making the most of its economic potential. A survey by the World Economic Forum says countries in sub-Saharan Africa are missing huge opportunities when it comes to making the most of their population's economic potential. The Human Capital Report says worldwide an average of 65% of talent is being optimized through education, skills development and deployment. The sub Saharan African region ranks lowest with an average score of 55%. The report ranks Finland, Norway, and Switzerland in the top three sports. Mauritius came out tops in Africa at 76. A planned truck driver strike in the fuel industry in South Africa has been put on hold. Petroleum sector trade unions and employers are to meet on Monday next week for further talks. Most fuel stations in Gauteng province say they have put contingency measures in place and have stocked up. Riyad Hafidji is an owner of a filling station.
2: There was a scheduled strike for the 27, but we're running smoothly. We haven't heard anything. The e, so far, we haven't heard about the strike starting. We have our contingency plans in place already. Uh, we do have stock available. We have stocked up for this. So we're good for now.
11: And finally, Kenya's NIC Bank is doubling its branch network of 50 by the end of next year to recruit new customers, particularly in the small business sector, allowing it to cut its deposit costs and boost margins. Chief Executive John Garoch-Kachora says the mid-tier lender, which is known for asset financing, has a net interest margin of 6.5% below the industry trend of 7-10%. to NIC, which also operates in Tanzania and Uganda, has traditionally concentrated on serving large corporations out of branches located in the main cities. NIC was appointed by state receiver Kenya Deposit Insurance Corporation last week to assess the liabilities and assets of Imperial Bank, which was put into receivership last October after fraud was uncovered. In our know, financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 15.22 to the South African rand, at 10.93 to the Botswana pula and at 10.84 to the Zambian kwacha. Says 0.75 to the British pound and at 0.90 to the euro. On to commodities, gold is at $1,312 and platinum at $971 an ounce, and the price of print crude oil is at $47.81 a barrel. That's the latest business news.
0: 10 minutes before 6 o'clock. Time now for the sports with Neto.
13: Good evening, sport fans. I'm Neto and Ito Ochemane with your sports update at this hour. SAFA's Technical Director Neil Tovey believes that the national under-23 team will continue to make the country proud when they take on Japan in an international friendly in Matsumoto tomorrow afternoon. Fresh from winning the Kosafa Cup over the weekend, Owen Takama's boys are preparing for the upcoming Olympics in Rio, and Tofi says the boys are beaming with confidence. The
18: exciting young couple of players that have come through, um, they showed it, as I said, with regards to winning the Kosafa Cup, but that's, that's, uh, that's a you know, uh, the next step is Rio is going to be really, really tough, and uh, the preparations are going well. We again the balance of opposition. Obviously, as you know, we the, the team is in, so that's playing Asian opposition, and China is in our group, and uh, in Sweden when we when we get to to uh, Brazil, so we got to play the likes of Denmark, so that's Scandinavian opposition, so. You know, the, the preparation is going very, very well. We, we're trying to get in another, another match in between those two matches. We're trying to find more position uh, in, 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 in the course of the next month uh, or in July to, to, to finally wrap up the preparation.
13: Zimbabwe Sports and Recreation Minister Makosini Llongwani has finally broken his silence on the June 4 dissolution of Zifa and the subsequent formation of its successor. The National Football Association of Zimbabwe by the Philip Chiangwa-led board saying the move was illegal. Llongwani told journalists at a press conference in Bulawayo on Monday that the dissolution of the football mother body was not done in accordance with the laws of the country and as such Zifa was still operational and the newly established association existent. The Official said that the dissolution of ZIFA needed to be done lawfully and in accordance with its constitution before any recognition by the Ministry and World Football Governing Body FIFA. Amaju Pinik, the president of Nigerian Football Federation, NFF, says the Super Eagles would have a substantive head coach within the next two weeks. The football body is working around the clock to ensure they got a new head coach for the Super Eagles. NFF spokesperson Adimola Olajire has the details.
4: Uh, yeah, a number of people have uh, applied, uh, You know, uh, mostly foreign, uh, foreigners, and I'll uh, applied, and uh, the technical committee has made the... Uh, they try and open the job, you know, for both expatriates and uh, indigenous Nigerian coaches. Um, y- you know, even before the World Cup draw, we knew that we needed to get a substantive coach. You know, after uh, Sunday Oliseh left uh, in February, uh, since then we have we've had, uh, you know, interim uh, coaches uh, in Seattle and Salisu uh, now we're working to get a substantive coach and we know that we need to get that quickly sorted out you know before the beginning of the World Cup qualifiers in October the new coach also has to familiarize himself with the players you know and get to know them very well you know before that first match uh, against Zambia. So-
13: when New Zealand tours South Africa in August, they will do so with the assistance of a man who has been close to the Proteus for the last 10 years. According to reports, the Kiwis have appointed Ryan Muller as their new logistics manager. That is the same position that Muller had held with the Proteus up until the end of World 2020 in India this year. Muller, who had been a previous sports therapist at the Proteus, was elevated to logistics manager in 2012 under Gulam Rajas' leadership. Muller and his family are set to relocate to New Zealand later this year, but before then, the Kiwis will be in South Africa for the two tests on the 19th and the 27th of August. Meanwhile, the Kiwis are expected to spend some time at the Pretoria's High Performance Center in July before leaving for a short tour of Zimbabwe. South Africa's junior wheelchair tennis player Tadwayo went down to Nalab Buop of Sweden in the final of the women's single final at the Bulugwani Open currently underway in the Limpopo province. Buop won the tie 6-3-7-5. Here is Antoni Murutani, wheelchair tennis South Africa's national public relations manager, with the details.
3: Nalani Baup from Switzerland ran away with, it, with the point, uh, defeating uh, South Africa's uh, Tandukladuayu uh, 6-3-7-5 to clinch. Her first biggest title in her career, she's actually a 15-year-old, she's still a junior, so this is actually one of her big victories. In the boys' singles, I won the Kusana, the top six, and the world number three, the boys' juniors uh, also clinched the, his first one Open title, uh, beating compared Ian Ian's name one 6 love.
13: Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Thank you very much, Neto. Recapping top stories this hour on Africa Digest, Catholic bishops in the Democratic Republic of Congo call on the country's government to guarantee human rights and respect democratic rules in the management of the state. And South Africa's ruling African National Congress is battling on many fronts to contain the fallout from the deep political crisis a few weeks ahead of the local election. That wraps up Africa Digest today. From myself, Tato, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you very much for listening. For comments on the show send us an email at info at channel or send us an sms on plus plus two seven eight two three three two five five nine zero nine. taking us to the top of the hour is the legendary jonas ngwangwa with lidumo